0: Thanks for joining us for the Disciples Church Podcast. My name is Jonathan Mosier, and it's my privilege to open up the Word with you this week. Before we begin today, let me just encourage you to sign up for our email list if you're not signed up already. We'll send out some supplemental resources that'll be especially helpful for today's text as we talk about some of the practical exercises that we can participate in, in moments of difficulty and turmoil. But in addition, we'll also send out other resources through the course of the coming weeks. We'll send out updates concerning the events and news that are going on with Disciples Church. And so if you'd like to join that mailing list, you can email us at info at discipleschurchwi.org. Now, as we look at the text for this week, we're back in the Psalms. Last week, we talked about the Psalms being such a unique gift to the believer because they reveal the human condition. Uh, They point us to our need for God, and then they reveal God's love and goodness and the way that the gospel connects to our deepest needs. But let me just encourage you as we continue in our study today that the Psalms are designed not for passive consumption, but for active participation. We see that in the scripture and throughout the history of the church. For instance, we see Jesus quoting the Psalms multiple times through the course of his ministry, 11 different occasions he quotes the Psalms. For millennia, God's people have been using the Psalms as prayers to be prayed, as songs to be sung, as passages to be meditated on. The great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said, Let your thoughts be Psalms, your prayers incense, and your breath praise. So as we look at the Psalms, let me invite you not to just read them passively, but to really interact with them. Participate with the author's reflections, with their confessions, with their rejoicings. And if you listen to the text from last week, you know that one of the themes we talked about was this idea of preaching to your own soul. And so as we come today to Psalm chapter 62, we find another example of that idea. A little over a year ago, as I was reading through the Psalms, I came to this particular chapter and I had the feeling that I've had on several different occasions through the course of my Christian life, which is, wow, when did this Psalm get added to my Bible? I didn't remember having read it before to my recollection. I had never heard a sermon preached on it. I don't think I had ever heard anybody really expound on it. And this chapter struck me in a way that it never had before. I know that I've referenced it at least once before in a sermon at Disciples, but I wanted to take the opportunity to take a closer look at it together. What I love about this psalm is that it was one born out of adversity. It was born out of the depths of David's own despair and difficulty. But what I love about it is that it's not somber in its tone. If anything, it's triumphant and hopeful, even as it's realistic. So coming out of Psalm 13 last week, where we talked about David preaching truth to his own soul, Psalm 62 shows us how to move from despair into hopefulness. And so these two sermons are really two of a kind. They fit together. So for our purposes today, we're going to look at the first eight verses of Psalm 62. And we'll begin in verse one. For God alone, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Now, David starts this psalm with a recognition of his own circumstances. He's experiencing this intense restlessness in his life. And look where this restlessness comes from. Look at verse 3. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him? It appears that his restlessness was due first uh, to these external pressures, these attacks that came from outside, the judgments of other people around him, people who wanted to see him fail, who wanted to see him fall. And look then how he describes the effect that it had on his soul. He said he's like a leaning wall and a tottering fence. In other words, his restlessness was due to a combination of external pressures and internal turmoil. He felt like the world was battering him, beating him up. He felt no reprieve from the difficulties externally and from the internal pain that he was experiencing. And when he uses this phrase saying that he's like a a leaning wall or a tottering fence, he's saying it's like the feeling of being kicked while you're down where you're saying, I can't take another hit. And so the implicit question that David poses here is, where then do we place our trust? And look at his answer throughout the course of this text. I'll just read you some highlights from this chapter. In verse 1, he says, my salvation comes from God alone. Verse 2, he alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. My hope is from him. Verse 7, on God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Now, this to the Christian is a seemingly obvious sentiment. Where do we place our trust? We place it in God. When turmoil and life is too much to bear, where do we put our trust? We put it in God. But the question that immediately leaps to mind for anyone experiencing this is, how? How do I actually do that? How do I place my trust in God? Is it as simple as knowing the right information about him? Well, obviously that can't be the sole answer. Otherwise, so many characters through the course of scripture wouldn't have had the internal difficulties that they ended up having. Is it as simple as having experienced the power of God in your life? Well, of course, it can't be just as simple as that, because if that were the case, Elijah, after having faced the prophets of Baal and seeing God work in miraculous form, calling down fire from heaven, would have been a man who was unstoppable in his life and ministry. But just chapters later in that story, what you see is Elijah in the pit of despair, crying out for his own death before God. So how then does one move from despair to hope? And we find the answers in verses 1 and 5, where David uses these phrases, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Verse 5, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. Literally translated that phrase, my soul waits in silence, could be read as, Only with God is my soul silent. David finds the answer to his turmoil in silence before the Lord. And the truth is, silence is something that is incredibly difficult for us to find. I think there are three primary reasons why people struggle with the idea of silence or stillness in their life. For some, it's just a practical difficulty. I mean, for me, I found that the time when I most enjoy stillness with the Lord is in the morning. I love to get up early and have a cup of coffee. I love to be up before anybody else's and be able to preferably be outside and have a few minutes of silence where I'm resting in God and thinking about God and hearing from God. But I'm in a season now where I have a newborn child and two young kids who love to wake up early. In fact, generally, they like to wake up much earlier than I like to wake up. And on top of that, it's usually too cold in the morning to sit outside. And then we get into the busyness of the day, and life is hectic, and by the time evening has come, I just want to go to bed. So for some of us, it's practically difficult to engage in silence. For some, it's not so much the practical difficulty, it's experiential difficulty. And what I mean by that is we just have never taken the time to observe intentional stillness as part of our spiritual discipline. I mean, we hear the siren song of social media, of streaming services and TV, of radio and podcasts, just a fingertip away. And the idea of being still or sitting in silence is daunting and maybe even boring. We've become dependent on the constant stream of voices to distract us from what's going on internally. And as a result, we've become spiritually atrophied. We no longer know how to feed ourselves, how to engage with God, how to apply the word to our hearts. And so what we begin to do is live vicariously off of someone else's spiritual experience. For others, it's not so much practical or experiential, but there's a real emotional difficulty in approaching silence. See, when we're in turmoil, our soul is restless. Our minds race to try to figure out solutions and answers to the difficulties in our lives. But the whole problem with inner turmoil is that it doesn't have a quick solution. There is no silver bullet. So for instance, I remember having a conversation with Jessica several months back. I had told her about an encounter with someone. Um, and in this encounter, I was just really bothered by the way that it ended. And it had started to become a source of some anxiety in, in my heart. It had been consuming my thoughts. Um, I went to bed thinking about it. I woke up thinking about it. And as I was talking to her one day, she posed a question that I hadn't considered. She said, how much of your worry and stress has actually helped you? She said, yes, your mind is moving a lot, and yes, it's constantly churning things over, but are you actually finding solace or solution in that churning? And my answer to her was no. See, what I really needed was deep soul rest. I needed the chattering of my mind to cease, and I needed to find rest in something infinitely greater. And that's the reminder that we receive all throughout the Psalms. Psalm chapter 4 says, be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. Psalm 37, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 130, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. Psalm 131, I do not concern myself with great matters, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a child with its mother. So the great Christian thinker and author Dallas Willard said it this way. He said, solitude, well-practiced, will break the power of busyness, haste, isolation, and loneliness. You will see that the world is not on your shoulders after all. You will find yourself and God will find you in new ways. Silence completes solitude, for without it you cannot be alone. Far from being a mere absence, silence allows the reality of God to stand in the midst of your life. God does not ordinarily compete for our attention. Rather, in silence, we come to attend. See, for most of us, silence can be scary because it exposes us. It exposes our inadequacies, our selfish strongholds, our idols. And when we're in those moments where we're quiet and alone, we become uniquely aware of the difficulties that we face in our own hearts and our minds. But the problem is that we cannot address our turmoil apart from silence. But when we engage in silence and solitude, we give an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to reveal our fears so that the power of God through the word of God can address them. And what David was learning in his silence is that God truly was enough. He was saying, I really only need one thing in order to have peace, and that is God. And silence was the discipline through which he came to that realization. This is something that we see Jesus himself engaging in all throughout the course of his ministry. But it's so easy for us to miss those examples that we find in scripture. I mean, for me, I grew up in a Christian home and early on, I could tell you all about the deity of Jesus Christ. I could tell you all about the relationship that he had with his father and the relationship he had with the spirit and the fact that he was, in fact, the God man. But the difficulty that I had was not understanding his deity. It was understanding his humanity. To me, that was the part of the Bible that seems silent. But Jesus' humanity reveals something that we desperately need to see. In Matthew chapter 14, we're given this one particular example of Jesus' response to difficulty in his life. And I want to read that account for you. Beginning in verse 6 of Matthew 14, it says this, When Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod, so that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it, and they went and told Jesus. Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. Now think about this. Jesus had been busy with ministry and he'd, be, he'd been successful in ministry. In chapter 12, he casts out a demon. In chapter 13, he preached the kingdom parables. And now in this moment, he finds out that his cousin, John the Baptist, had been murdered. And what does he do? He withdraws to a solitary place. And in this moment, you see Jesus's deep humanity. He responds to the call of Psalm 62. He waits in silence. He pours out his heart before the Lord. See, Jesus knew what it was to be alone with the Father. He knew what it was to live his life out of the identity that he had before the Father. And the truth was, there was more work to be done There were more people to be healed, there were more people to be saved, there were more people who needed to be cared for, but Jesus recognized that in the moment of human exhaustion and hardship, he needed to be alone with the Father. Eugene Peterson writing said it this way, silence is the prerequisite to hearing. If we reject silence, our words are reduced to puffing up our own shriveled selves. If we talk all the time, or let others talk all the time, our ears and mouths are filled with clichés and platitudes, mindless chatter and pretentious gibberish. In silence, language is renewed. In the absence of human sound, it becomes possible to hear the logos, the word of God that gives shape and meaning to our words. See, we're not talking here about Eastern mysticism or Zen Buddhism. We are talking about making time for our hearts to engage with God and what we know to be true about him. In other words, it's not just that God gives us rest. It's that he himself is rest. And after David participates in solitude before the Lord, look what he does. Verse 8. He says, trust in him at all times, O people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. See, David is now in a position not only to address the turmoil of his own heart, but also to minister to others in their need. And you will never be in a position to care for others well until you take the time to be rooted and grounded in the security of God's love and grace. See, it's in the silence and the solitude that David recalls that God had given himself to David. And the truth is that we have an even better view into that than David did. This week for us in the West is Palm Sunday. This is the week where um, historically the church observes the start of Holy Week when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And as he rode in to the waving of palm branches and the cries of the people as they shouted, Hosanna, this Hoshia na literally it meant save us. It was a picture that the God of the universe, who'd been faithful to David in, in the midst of his need, was now giving himself freely for his people. It's what Jesus meant when he said, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And in the laying down of his life, which we remember on Good Friday, and in the taking up again of his life, which we will celebrate next Sunday on Easter, there is a reminder of how much Christ values us, that he gave himself to us in the most powerful way imaginable. So as we enter into this Holy Week, let me suggest to you that there is no better means of preparation than spending time with God in moments of silent contemplation. So for those whose lives and souls are in turmoil, look to stillness and solitude with the Lord as a means of reorienting your heart and recentering your faith on God. And for those who are not in the season of difficulty, get into this regular practice now so that you may be ready when the storm clouds gather. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are the source and giver of rest. In you, we find the peace that surpasses our understanding and the presence that assures us of your ever-present love and the power that calmed the storm. We pray, Lord, that we would grow comfortable with silence and solitude so that the gospel of grace can root itself in our lives, bring comfort in uncertainty, and empower us to be faithful to the ministry into which you've called us. So, Lord, we'll trust you to be our hope, our salvation, our fortress, and refuge. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Blessings to you all this week.